Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have another special guest. His name is Dave Pollard, and he is an architect, builder, and the co-founder of Live Companies, a full-service residential design build company in the Chicago suburbs. Dave started LiveCo in 2012 in an effort to provide quality design to suburban homeowners, but with some twists to the, to, to the traditional architecture services model. Following on the heels of his graduate thesis work stating, quote, to make architecture more accessible, it's time we stop trying to redesign the building systems and architects lead the charge in rethinking the design systems. This evolved into a design build model which allows simplified deliverables and a fully integrated and accountable team to deliver, quote, the project. Livco has won numerous awards, including 20 Chicago Remodeling Excellence Awards, four Regional Remodeling Excellence Awards, Home of the Year Award, Contractor of the Year Award, five consecutive House Best of Service, Remodeling Big 50, and in 2018, Dave was also featured on Pro Remodeler's 40 Under 40 list. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lance. That's quite an intro. I think we might be out of time now. Yeah, right? But I appreciate it. <laughs> that was one of the best ones. I love, I love when we have guests like you on that have uh, accolades <laughs> like that. It just feels good. It feels good. Um, well, let's, let's peel back the onion a little bit, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about being the youngest of seven, and then did any, and, and being, did any of that growing up like that, or maybe from your parents, like, where did you, where did the entrepreneur spirit come from? Where did the desire to be an architect, a builder, all of these things come from? Oh, that, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I am the youngest of seven. Um, the oldest sibling was 17 years older. So I think uh, there's a couple of things that kind of played into that. One is um, I was left alone to figure things out on my own a lot. Um, and then I had a lot of stuff to tinker with from my um, older siblings. So, you know, I was always taking apart stereo equipment. I remember my brothers had an Atari and they go off to college and I'd disassemble that. So it's always kind of like, you know, exploring. Um, at the same time, you're also kind of craving attention from older siblings. So you're always uh, talking about stuff, making things, trying to show it off. Um, it's an interesting I don't know if it's true for all the youngest, but I always think about like Stephen Colbert, who's the youngest of 13. Mm -hmm. So kind of similar, you can kind of see the youngest of big family personalities are usually gonna be uh, pretty outspoken and constantly needing to be noticed. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I mean, having older brothers and building a tree house in the backyard, they'd have summer jobs and would come home and help me build it. So, you know, I had a lot of, uh, older family members to learn from and kind of present to and listen to. So yeah, it's certainly an, uh, an interesting way to grow up. And I always had better taste in music than most of my friends as well. Probably most importantly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I like to think that too. Uh, I like to think that I have better movie tastes than Alex, but he would completely disagree. Um, <laughs> so uh, for, when you started, when you started your company, what, 
what, what did you always have the idea that you were going to start your own company or were you kind of like some of us where we got kicked to the curb in the great recession or even now, you know, some people are kicked to the curb in different areas and then you're going to see this entrepreneurial boom every time we get, you know, our teeth kicked in. No, I think, I think I was always good at all of my, all of the, my jobs and the places where I worked. Um, you know, and I, I was pretty good at kind of carving out an important place for me. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, you know, a career move. I think it was more personal that I wanted to build something. Mm. Um, and ignorance was, was bliss at the time. Uh, I think I've talked about it before where, you know, being uh, pretty outspoken and type A and a go-getter, it's really easy to find things that are wrong with your managers and your bosses and say mm-hmm. that you can do it better. Mm-hmm. So I think I always planned on trying that at some point. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was definitely circumstances that presented themselves, uh, opportunities that were happening in the last, uh, you know, fallout of the residential housing market that made it way easier um, to start a business that was up and running on day one versus totally start from scratch. So it's a, a lot of different circumstances. I don't think that it's something that I fell into necessarily, something that I, I always felt like I, I wanted to take a stab at it, um, probably from a leadership role and be able to try things a little bit differently. That yeah. makes sense? It makes 100% sense. I think we're a lot the same. I, I distinctly remember in the sense of seeing former managers, seeing former bosses and thinking you can do it, you could do it better and seeing the flaws. I'm, I'm also very type A. Uh, what are some of the things, you know, one of the things, uh, for an example, one of the things that we, we decided to do differently was we're not going to put all our eggs in one basket. We're going to be a multi-pronged uh, firm that does a variety of different things. We're not just going to cater to the 1%. We're going to cater to the 98% and the 1%. Um, and try to make architecture accessible by streamlining our business. And that all came from the failed, the failed businesses and the leaders that I, that I got laid off from. What, what are some specific things that you brought over when you started your firm? Like, this is, this is how we're going to do it because I saw the failure. Um, Well, I got really tired of designing projects that never got built. Mm -hmm. That, that seemed kind of dumb to me. Um, and I don't even know that, and I wasn't that involved of, of the finances of the firms at that point, but I don't even know that we made a whole lot of money off of those either. So you just kind of, you know, burn a bunch of energy and, and, and passion on something that never gets realized. And historically, the reason they didn't get realized is because you go through the whole design process, you're basically selling people drawings, and then that gets priced out and it's too expensive, and then they end up moving. And that seemed kind of silly to me. Um, So I think, you know, design build was definitely a path. I think I always felt like the developer model was going to make the most sense. You know, when you talk about, you know, being a control freak, Mm -hmm. being being a developer is the ultimate way to do that, where you're just going to build it and tell everybody what you're going to, you know, here, take it or leave it, as opposed to what we are now, which is definitely more service oriented. Um, so that's probably, you know, the biggest piece of it was, was definitely wanting to be involved in actually delivering the house or the building versus just delivering um, hourly services and, and pictures. Um, I shouldn't say that. I'm an architect, so I can say that. You can say that. I was just going to say, David, you can say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just delivering drawings, which, you know, was only a piece of the puzzle. 
it wasn't it wasn't a fully integrated team that was bringing budget in early. There's a lot of just inefficiencies in the process that led to things not coming to realization. Um, you know, on the cultural side, one thing that I always said, I don't know when I decided it. I think it was on my birthday when I worked for companies and I would go to the office on my birthday and I didn't feel like doing any, any work because mm -hmm. it was my birthday and I wanted everyone to wish me a happy birthday. And like, this is my day. Why should I have to do a bunch of work? So I said, when I have my own company, we're going to have a company policy that everybody gets their birthday off and um, you have to take it off and you can't work. It doesn't matter if you have a bunch of stuff to do. You, we should have planned for that earlier, just as if you were going on mm -hmm. vacation. That's kind of intended to be just like your day. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of a funny little cultural thing that I, that I always wanted to do. Um, probably the third prong of it is, is kind of understanding time management. And I, I worked for firms um, that, you know, the deadline was the deadline and how we got there wasn't really laid out in terms of how many hours we had to work in a day. Um, and I'm all for, you know, working hard and working nights and doing what I need to do to get something done. But I felt like it, it wasn't, it wasn't a function of a failure of the project that we were doing that. It was a function of the failure of the management to really understand how long it took to build a project and then be able to, uh, budget for that in the future. So we do, you know, weekly design planning meetings where we fill out everybody's time um, on each project and it has to add up to 40 hours. It's not saying there won't be times that we need to work more than that or that you might have to get three hours of work done in two hours, but at least fundamentally we're saying what we're trying to do is achieve what we need to achieve as a business with everyone working 40 hours per week. And we're not saying you have to work 60 hours this week. If we do, then that's, you know, a, a big picture management issue on our end. It really is. Yeah. And I think that's something from the old school that I really hope is dying. I assume you look young like me. I assume you're a late, a later aged millennial or an early or a younger Gen X. And yeah, kind of that, that in-between generation, right? That knows when we didn't have internet, but understands the internet. Yeah. So millennials born, born in 79. Yes. We're, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I really think that's ex our, our hopefully people of our age, I think are, we're not, we're rejecting that whole idea. I mean, I, I really get upset if folks at our firm, they, they work, they're working more than they need to. I'm like, that's a, that, number one, like, tell me what I'm doing wrong as a manager. Number two, right. what, are, what are we doing wrong with our systems? Like, are we, are we overdrawing and overthinking all of those processes? Um, so bravo, bravo for that. I'm gonna, I actually might steal your idea of birthdays off. My birthday, Alex's birthday is right. tomorrow. Like he shouldn't be working. He should be doing what yeah. he wants to do. And then everyone who's working doesn't have to worry about like an office space when they sing happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of that whole awkward stuff. Just take I like it off. Yep. Sit on a, you know, just sit in a chair and watch Dr. Phil all day. I don't care. You know, it's your day. It's your day. And then your, yeah. your kids are at school, your wife's at work and you just have a day. I love it. You're like required to take mm -hmm. the best. I never so, take it off, but it's all right. I know what you mean. I'm actually taking off uh, the weekend and I'm going fishing. So that's, it's sort of a birthday weekend, right? Nice. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, tell me about how you, when you started live companies then it was, it was design build from the beginning or, or did you transition it as you sort of getting, got design projects and then moved them into build projects? 
Yeah, so I alluded to it a little bit um, that we had an instant company. Uh, so we actually started, uh, my business partner, uh, Russ, he was the director of construction. I was the director of design for a developer. And this was in uh, 2012. And so what was happening in the residential real estate market is you had these big um, Wall Street guys out of California and New York who were buying up all the foreclosed single family homes. And they were fixing them up and converting them to rentals. And they were on their way to Chicago. And we had a couple ends. We had um, some friends in, in California that were doing work for a couple of these big companies there um, and had a couple connections in the financial world that got us kind of in front of some of the big players as they were arriving here. So they would come here and say, hey, we're going to be buying 10,000 houses over the next three years. We need companies to fix these things up and it needs to be systemized and we can't just go find Carl who has a truck down the street and just hire him. Like we're sophisticated. Um, this is the wall street guy saying, you know, we need a level of sophistication that they can use uh, Salesforce and CRM systems and understand our PO systems, but also be able to, you know, fix up a beat up home in three weeks for $15,000. So, we connected with those guys and said, we kind of have a plan that we can do um, ideally, you know, 10, 10 of these a month for you. And I think in our peak, we probably did a hundred in a year. Wow. Um, and we kind of coined the phrase pr production rehab. So we were the, the in-between of sophisticated architect and former home builder bridging the gap between a wall street guy who doesn't understand what it takes to fix up a house and the guy with the hammer who all he wants to do is fix up the house. And we did that for about uh, two and a half years as we kind of built out the design build aspects of it. Um, and to answer your first question, yeah, I think, I think we, we were always planning to be design build because just me selling architecture services, I don't think that we had the portfolio necessarily to support a whole operation doing okay. that at the residential level that we were. It's a long time to build yourself up to be able to demand those kinds of fees, I think, and kind of have that, that clout. Um, so I think we always felt like we were probably going to build new houses spec and sell them. Um, was probably the easiest way to leverage the architect and builder value. And then we started picking up a couple remodels here and there that were design build and it turned out really cool. And then we're like, hey, I think we might actually be really good at this. And then um, we would walk into someone's house and come up with a design concept. They'd talk to four other people and not, none of them proposed what we proposed and ours was way better. <laughs> so that's how we, we kind of realized that we could leverage the design side and then bring budget in, into it and then follow through on the construction side. It just kind of all clicked. And that was probably six, six years ago it first clicked and then we really started to uh, hone the business, hire, uh, you know, a player employees, uh, build out the systems probably three or four years ago. We're almost there. Nice. So, you, so it was just you and your business partner. And then how, how big have you guys grown it to now? So we're 10, we're 10 people now. Oh, great growth. That's fantastic. Yeah. You guys sound plus, plus an intern. You guys sound extremely similar to us. So I'm so glad to have you on today. Um, to pick your brain is just somebody who's really in a, a kind of a similar position. Did you guys do any development then? You mentioned spec houses. Did you guys actually purchase and make that happen or no? 
we did one and we're like, wow, that was terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) What was terrifying about it for you? Uh, The house sitting on the market and us having a giant um, loan out there that, and and then transferring it to, um, you know, to, to different loan. I mean, my partner and I don't have cash. Mm -hmm. We, we didn't, we started, we literally started the company with $5,000 in a credit card Mm -hmm. and we bought our, um, our, uh, GC, all of our insurance that we needed in order to be an operating GC and then bought like sweet sweatshirts and business cards. Yeah. We're off to the races, right? Yeah. So that's pretty much all we had. So when we, when we purchased a house to fix up and flip, um, it was kind of like, it just got thrown in our lap is so perfect. But it, I mean, Chicago is, continues to be kind of a struggling real estate market. I mean, now the suburbs are since the pandemic have changed, but yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like we were in Seattle or something and we were just going to, um, you know, print money off of it. It was it was kind of a grueling process that was very expensive. You know, we used our entire line of credit in order to to complete the work. And then it had to sit there and sell. And, you know, you're just like, I really hope this thing sells. And it did. But I think we ended up probably making like 10% at the end of the day, which that seemed kind of silly for a lot of risk. It is, dude. Yeah, we were in much the same boat with our development in the building I'm sitting in right now. Uh, so, but I got to ask you, since you put yourself in that position as, as a developer, did it give you any, and, and you, you already worked under a developer. So do, do, do you feel like that helped at all to be on the other side of the coin? And then looking back, if you guys are, are working for developer types, like maybe you could speak to a couple examples of, specifics about how it helped it maybe it maybe helps your relationship with developers or not um so we don't we don't do work for developers is that what you what you mean yeah oh yeah exactly or maybe you don't and maybe um it, it you know like a, there's got to be there's always a reason for some uh, there's a, a reason for something so what kind of lessons besides the risk did you guys take from doing that experiment calling it an experiment yeah, I mean, I, I think, so my, my mom, and I grew up in Virginia and live in Chicago now. My, my parents came out for a long weekend or something. I took her there to the house that we just flipped. And, you know, she's, she's my ultimate critic. And she's like, well, why don't you do these windows differently? Or you should, why don't you change these windows to this or then do this? And my answer is like, all of those are great, but I have a, a budget ceiling that anything else that I do to make this thing any better, there is zero return on it. And that's, that's a fun constraint, but there is something really nice about working with a client where we can say, hey, you might get some specific value from this. You don't have to do it, and it might push over your budget, but you guys can make that value judgment. If I'm in the position to make a value judgment on what someone is going to um, want to spend money on across the board. I don't think I'm as successful at that as I am working through um, on paper where the value can be, if, if that makes sense. I'm not saying that I can't do it, but it was definitely um, a, a learning experience. And for the most part, when people are remodeling their houses, it's extremely expensive, right? And yes. a lot of times they're not going to get an immediate return. I mean, especially in Chicago, it's just not going to put money in their pocket immediately. So they're really investing in their quality of life in order to do that versus, um, 
you know, me, me make a, a developer profit off of it. So it's two very different things. Um, not that either can't be done well, but a lot of times the developer model ends up getting very vanilla. It has to kind of appeal to a broad range of people right. in order to work. Yeah, so then you can sleep at night on those 10% margins, right? Right. I hear you. <laughs> Talk about one, one little thing you want to, I want to bring up, kind of go back in time a little bit here in this podcast is uh, the suburbs in Chicago. So I know you, Chicago is struggling, was already struggling real estate wise. And maybe you could talk about why I assume it's because of the crazy property taxes you guys have there and stuff like all the bureaucracy, you know, I've heard stories about like Chicago and New York, like you got to hire the mob to get built stuff built. Maybe that's not anymore, but what has happened since COVID outward? Is it, has it helped your guys' market and everything? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I think we had, we had already started to see it a little bit and you know, my family, my wife and I are the perfect example. We, we lived in the city in the loop, um, two blocks from the art Institute. Life wow. was great. Millennium park was right there. Um, and then we had kids and, you know, everybody knows the, the cliche or the story. Um, and we're like, I think we can do this. We'll stay here for a little while. And then, um, they're walking out on the balcony, you know, they can get the door open and we're on the 16th floor and they're going out to the balcony. I'm like, uh, maybe we should at least poke around the suburbs a little bit, or at least look for like what would be ideal for us in the city. Well, the space that we wanted where you had the awesome walkout rooftop deck where we could hang out outside and do all these great things in the city was going to be three and a half million dollars. So we didn't have three and a half million dollars. So we, you know, looked in a 40 minute commute radius and found an awesome little town and bought a beat up house for $230,000 and made it awesome, you know, remodeled it. And so that really kind of clicked, clicked for us. And we've, that, that happens for a lot of families. Um, And I think what happened during the pandemic is you always had a sequence of people that were eventually going to get to that point said they were going to move from the city to the suburbs at some point. And then when everything got shut down, it's like, well, if we're going to do it any, if we're going to do it in a year, we might as well do it now. Mm-hmm. So you had a pretty big uh, immediate instead of a flow over 10 years, you know, you had probably, probably five years worth of people move out to the suburbs. And I think historically you've seen people move to um, suburbs farther away. And now they're moving to, suburbs a little bit closer, like where I live in, in Riverside um, and kind of the near burbs because they, they still can access the city really, really easily. So we've seen a huge boom in um, property values and property sales in our town where houses would sit on the market for a year. Now you get four offers in a day. It's, it's kind of wild. So it's really cool to see that. Um, and then, you know, I think we've always targeted clientele, which would be people from the city who appreciate kind of cool design and things that they're used to in the city and having those in the suburbs. So that clicks with what we do because now all of a sudden we have ideal clients who are immediately set into the suburbs. There's very low inventory. So they're going to find a house that they don't love, but in a great location, and they're going to need, need to do a bunch of work to it. So, you know, 
silver linings of, of COVID that's certainly been good for our business. And we're, we've been positioned pretty well for kind of a, a young clientele moving from the city to the suburbs. That's fantastic. Did you guys have to do any creative marketing during the pandemic or was it just traditional, you know, I mean, the traditional stuff kind of went out the window for a while. How have you guys adapted? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we've ever done anything too traditional anyway, to be right. honest, but during the pandemic, it was kind of, and I've talked about this in a couple podcasts. We, it, you know, it's kind of like, we're just going to do stuff. It, it didn't matter. Like, you know, the world might end tomorrow. So let's just, have a little bit of fun with it. So we did, we, we did a lot of fun things with, um, created coloring sheets. So we took all of our projects and turned them into coloring sheets and put them on our website, um, for downloads and sent them to all of our previous clients. So, you know, we had a black and white perspective view of their, of their space. Um, we did a paper house project, which you could download and print out a foldable paper house. And it was like modular, so we're trying to come up with fun things for the kids to do when they're all stuck at home and give the, give the parents a break. Um, we did Zoom backgrounds, which I think we were really early on that. Yeah. Uh, like we were one of the first where we just took, we had really great pro photos and we just converted them to Zoom backgrounds. We didn't put logos on them or anything like, hey, just if you want a, a cool space, um, you know, use this. I'm not using one right now, but uh, <laughs> I probably should. Yeah. Um, and anything that we could do to kind of help people, I think our messaging switched to, you know, we're, we're here to help. We don't anticipate you wanting to add on to your house tomorrow, but you know, anything that we can do um, from a creative place, um, we're here. You know, I think blog posts have put out a lot of stuff about how to keep your house fresh, like just move, move pictures around, right? It was, it was a weird time. So, you know, maybe take the curtains in one room and put them in a different room some sort of variety. So anything that we could come up with to help people out there in that time. And, you know, when they come out of it, know who we are and maybe remember us was, was what we we're trying to do. And it, it definitely worked. I mean, we've been uh, pretty, I mean, our website traffic has, has been absolutely through the roof. I mean, I think that's up uh, probably, you know, 600% year over year. Part wow. of it is market, market conditions, but also I think a lot of what we've done but yeah, we, we just try and have fun with it and, and see if it works. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, I also love that you have, you've, you've done your best to try to fulfill your graduate thesis in one of the, you know, what your statement about to make architecture more successful and architects leading the charge and rethinking um, basically our process and how we deliver things. And again, the parallels between our firms are so similar. It's, it's uncanny one of the courses and, and the reason you've reached out to me is because I think you saw my LinkedIn post about we're going to, you know, our, Alex and I are doing this architect builder course. Um, it, it, I feel so strongly about, and I assume you do too, about that's one of the ways I think we take back the profession from the general contractors, from yep. the developers. Can you speak, can you elaborate on how you feel about that? And, 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 and maybe it, it, to uh, pitch to other architects of like why they should be doing kind of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, actually, when I graduated school and moved to Chicago, I started a blog called Take Back the Building. Boom. So when you said take it back, it was like, it was exactly, and what, what I saw is that um, we, architects as a whole, weren't involved in residential. 
except for the highest level of um, of projects, right? That they had the fee to be able to do it. And what I kept hearing was you just can't make any money in it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that seems dumb. So we're just going to give up. So you have this like this social, um, you know, social responsibility uh, side of architects who are developing all this affordable housing and like container housing. And mm-hmm. they're coming up with all these crazy ideas on that. And then you have these architects doing beautiful projects for hedge fund fund managers. And then you have all this in between that's completely unserviced because yep. the profession has said, well, we can't make any money doing it. So my question was like, well, what's the problem? Why can't we? Does it take too much time to design something for someone? Well, let's figure out how we can design something faster or maybe instead of giving them a million dollar solution, you know, maybe the $10,000 solution is still really good or at least better than what a non-architect and then the other side of that is if we don't do anything, we're going to have zero input in it at all, which we've already kind of done from a home builder perspective, right? Like Pulte, all those guys, yep. Horton, they, they, they determine what the design market is. Like we have nothing to do with it anymore. Um, and in my thesis, I really tried to explore how brilliant architects have tried to uh, take on this challenge over the decades and with case study houses, um, with, with everything, it was always redesigning how we build buildings. It was like, well, let's come up with a better way to build the building. And my problem with that was the architects were never saying, well, maybe we need to look at a better way to design the building. We're blaming all the dysfunction on architects not being involved in residential construction on how people are building it. You know, and an evolution of all these hundreds of millions of people in the trades, and we're going to take mm-hmm. on that and say, no, this is how you build a building and make it be good. So I, I argue that maybe if we just rethink how we're designing things and how, how that business model works, maybe the architecture firm model is flawed, we can actually, you know, all make a living and do very well, impact the built environment, uh, impact families' lives growing up in these houses uh, and, you know, kind of take back the building. Like yeah. how I brought that back around. I love that. That was full circle. <laughs> and that was and with technology, with technology now, it's like, what are we doing? I mean, I'm thinking about figuring out how to design houses in Roblox, you know, like, why not? Yeah. We're, we're like so way behind in leveraging technology to be able to help us there. Yeah. Where do you think the future lands with technology? You know, one of the topics I like to bring up a lot is 3D printing. I mean, but then we're kind of going to back to this idea like, oh, we're telling the trades how to, how to build things. Um, but one of the most recent ones that I've seen is, I don't know if you've seen this, is there's there's this house that this developer, maybe I'll text it to you after this, is he is this, he's, a, he's, he's a builder, but he worked with an architect and he finally leveraged the architect, I think, in the right way. And they eliminated all the drywall on the inside of a house. And drywallers are a bane of my existence. Um, <laughs> so it's like solutions like that, that I think are really the way to go. It's not about reinventing the wheel. It's about modifying the wheel a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that's a big part of it. And I think, Architects have always turned towards um, modular and actually a really cool firm in Chicago did uh, a modular house that was stacked. And then you end up building it offsite and then you stack it 
well, you have a redundancy of systems between the roof and the floor. Yep. Like it just, it just didn't work in the way that you're thinking about it. So I think that, you know, any place in, in kind of modifying building systems that makes sense, but using the same systems can be really successful. I mean, I, I explored ways of electrical, right? Do we, and in Chicago, we run conduit and everything. So maybe there's a better electrical system that's a little bit more plug and play. Um, you know, wireless technology of, uh, you know, I can charge my phone on a magnet now. So why can't I just have a, a induction magnet system going around the house? But again, I'm kind of doing the same thing where I'm saying, well, the problem is, is the electrical is too expensive. Um, so where I've kind of gone back to is more finding a system, um, like a permutative design. Essentially, there's an algorithm that can be written for every move that you can make in a design. And HiArc is trying to do this. I don't know if you've looked at HiArc. It's, mm -mm. it's kind of Silicon Valley startup is trying to do it for new construction. Um, and basically, and their initial argument was like, why hire an architect? You can just use us. And I reached yeah. out to him like, what are you doing? You need architects to inform the system. Like yep. help us make your system better. But that kind of same idea of understanding if we do this in real time, what that means for budget, what that means for space, what that means for sunlight, and really take the already known building systems that but find ways in permutative design to find a million different configurations plus. And I mean, it's there in every type of technology already. We just haven't really brought it into, into the building world because it, it is complex and in remodeling, it's probably even you know, more challenging. Yep. That's kind of where, where I see it going is um, more real time, closing the feedback loop, um, helping, making clients able to see and make decisions faster. Um, you know, designing a building takes how long it takes to design a building, but all the in-between steps, I feel like can be shortened through technology. Um, so that's where my head is in, in the design world. And certainly in, in the build world, there's a, a billion different ways to find more efficiencies uh, that people have been trying to do for centuries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. David, I could probably talk for with you for another half hour or an hour or even longer. I know, me too. I think I think we should we should we should do another episode. Um, I don't know when, but in the future for sure. Um, there's just other things I'd like to pick your brain about. Um, but I do got to cut it short here. We are running up on the half hour. And one last question I'd like to ask all the guests is, knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time when you first started Livco, what advice would you give yourself? I would spend more on marketing on day two. Mm. Without hesitation. Without hesitation. Yeah, I love that. Spend on marketing. Yeah, yeah. Because Sales doesn't solve everything, but it sure does help a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, if people are in the Chicago area or they just want to check out what you guys are doing, um, where can they find and follow you guys? Um, so our website is livecompanies.com, L-I-V-C-O-M. P-A-N-I-E-S.com. We are on Instagram every day at live underscore companies. And then you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, we have a cool YouTube channel too. Yeah. Look up live companies. So lots of fun stuff. Beautiful. Lots of content. Yeah. David, thank you so much for your time. Good luck in everything you're doing. Keep on crushing it. I, I absolutely love what you guys are doing and I wish you guys the best.
Likewise. Thanks. Thanks, Lance. I appreciate it. All righty. See ya. Later. Later.